Hi everyone, this is Joshua Hoffman and welcome to another episode of the Masters in Marketing Agency podcast, where we deconstruct the why and how agency owners found their success and discuss a few things they learned along the way. Today I have Aaron Keller, the co-founder and CEO of Capsule, a strategic brand design agency that helps brands look the way they feel. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you, Josh. You as well. And I want to start off not with a marketing thing or anything like that. I want to start off with the three books that you wrote. Um, and I think it's interesting because you tried writing them with the other co-authors uh, in person. And I guess you're saying, you were saying that it didn't really work out that well, um, as opposed to when you guys were doing it digitally. So can you kind of just open up and talk a little bit more about that process? Yeah, the... Um... The writing of our third book with two other co-authors, we wrote all via Google Docs, and which means you're writing and some anonymous um, meerkat shows up and watches you as you write. And I was the primary author, um, and then the other two authors, the other two were editors and sources of knowledge and information. And so um, in writing the book, we got in a you know, probably... 150,000 words that we wrote over the course, or I wrote and then was edited down to the, whatever the ending number was, 80 or 100,000 or something. Um, so there's a lot of editing, but we could not, after we got the book done, and the, the funny story that came out of this was, we had to write that little paragraph or two paragraphs that go on the back of the book that describe the entire book, right? All the way down to those two paragraphs. So after writing all those words, we tried to write those two paragraphs together in a room together and we spent probably two or three hours working on it and we walked away and as we were driving back to our respective offices uh, we got a call from Renee and she said I don't like it I don't like it at all let's just trash it and start over so I got back to my office wrote the two paragraphs submitted it Dan edited it and Renee said I love it let's go um, and that's how those two paragraphs finally got written because we couldn't do it in a room together because you're all the other signals and the things you're like trying to work off your authors and seeing what they like and what works and what doesn't. It just, there's just too many visual cues that take away from the writing process. And, uh, and we had figured out a method and it worked. So that was the funny little part of that story. All right. then obviously I have to tie it with, uh, your, your agency. Did, did you, do you do that internally with your agency at all? Is it like something that, you know, are you guys remote? And, and if so, is that also something you practice or if not? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely the importance of time together and time alone. Um, but writing in front of people or doing, you know, certain creative efforts in front of people is it just we shouldn't do it. Um, it's really I mean, I've, I've had situations where we're like editing together and, and you can be in the same document, not looking at each other and editing. And that seems fine. Um, there's a little bit of distance there, right? And as far as how we work, yes, we are remote, um, uh, which I think pretty much everybody is in this current environment. Um, but we also have an office, which I'm sitting in. Um, so we have a place where we can get together, hang out, and, and be creative together and get that, that vibe happening. Um, but then we go away and do our own thing. So there's any project we do, there has to be alone time and together time and alone time and together time. And almost it's like an ebb and flow of the creative process. Um, and the together time is often critique or revi revising or editing or talking through things. Um, and you have to be able to handle that just as much as you can handle the alone time. Um, but you can't create, it's hard, I should say, to create original stuff as you are in front of someone because you're on stage. 
and your mind is thinking about the stage and not thinking about the thing you're trying to create. Were you guys remote before the pandemic? No, we were not. I mean, we did have, you know, the way we were officed, you could have the alone time. Um, It's become even more, obviously, through the pandemic. Um, And I think it's been more balanced um, for us, appropriately balanced. And it's created, a, a, I think, an incredible opportunity for firms like us to be in this environment. We've become better as a firm because of the pandemic. Well, that's pretty much what I was going to ask to that is like, what kind of changes, I guess, have you seen uh, positive and negative with going remote? Yeah, we have. Well, we've got clients all over the country and really all over the world. So we, the travel was a big part of what we had to do to be around clients, to be in touch with them. Um, the pandemic hits and our travel budget goes to zero. Uh, and we are still very close and connected to these clients and spending a lot of time with them, but it's in these environments. And uh, and it's amazing. Like in projects that we would be in Chicago, you know, at least once a week. Um, now we were doing projects. We were meeting with them once or twice a week and it would be an hour meeting and we were done moving on. Right, just more time on the things that matter versus time on planes and time in in Ubers and whatnot. Right, um, it's just much more valuable use of our time in our lives. I know, I know, it's weird not having uh, that commute going in. I, I used to listen to this uh, morning show, uh, and I honestly, I kind of, I listen to the podcast now, but I was kind of missing it. Um, but having those forty whatever minutes both ways, obviously, is it's a nice time to get back. Um, just taking a step back now, can you tell me a little bit more about your firm? Yes. Yeah. Um, so we are yeah in the category of what we call a special projects firm. We predominantly do really interesting special projects around design, brand, and marketing uh, for clients in a variety of categories. We probably do most of our work in outdoor-related um, health and wellness, um, and then um, related fields to that. So. Um, a lot of packaging work, a lot of brand naming work, a lot of messaging work, a lot of helping people figure out what a brand can do. A lot of mergers and acquisitions work around brands, which has been a big thing for us over the years. Um, and because that physics of brand book came out, that led to a lot of valuing brands, making sure that they're properly understood for their value and getting rid of the ones that aren't, don't have value, um, or improving them if they can be. So that's... Essentially, and, and the types of clients like Patagonia as a client, Arcteryx, uh, Curaleaf and Cannabis, PepsiCo has been a client. So we've been all over the world and to really, really large opportunities. We've been very fortunate that way. I would also like to call out Smart Wool because uh, I love that company and I saw you guys work with them as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually didn't know that you guys did like, I guess you call it special design um, firms. What does that mean and how the heck did you get into that as opposed to normal uh, work? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, the uh, the special projects thing came about on a project with Patagonia where they refer to us as their special projects team because they don't work with agencies. They rarely bring anybody in. And they said one of their criteria for bringing anybody in from the outside is you have to ask yourself as the team internally at Patagonia, would you spend a week in a tent with these people? Which I thought was a great finishing criteria. And we won on that criteria. And then they referred to us as their special projects team. So if they had a problem that they couldn't figure out either capacity wise or capability wise to solve, they would call us in um, to look at that problem, see if we can assess it and and solve it for them, um, and and then put together a team and go after it. And so that 
they told us that now it's got to be now 10, at least 10 years ago, maybe almost 15 years ago. It was a wonderful little phrase. And we kind of bounced around with it for many years. And then just in the past four years, it's kind of risen to the top as, yeah, we are special projects. The kinds of things we do are those really intense. And it's kinds of things that thrill us, that make us, you know, get up in the morning are those really, really intense challenges, right? We do not do, we're not a cut and paste firm, right? And there are people out there that they can make a good living cutting and pasting a lot of stuff. We're not that. Uh, everything we do is bespoke. We have to create new for clients. Um, and so it's got to be a special project of some sort, an extreme challenge, you might say. How do, how do you do that? How, like uh, just a little, we don't have to go too far into the detail, but what's kind of the process that, that you attack? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We There's always some form of research strategy and creative work, um, in our case, design as a component of that. Um, we have writers, strategists, researchers, um, and designers on staff. We form our team, and then we form an external team that's closely connected to us. So whoever, other partners, and we're very transparent with the client about that. Like, we're going to need these partners on the outside, but they're going to be transparent to us or to them. And uh, and we form this team and, and then put a scope together and say, this is what we're going to do to accomplish this. And at the end of this, this is what we would expect to deliver to you as a result. And then they'll often take it back in-house to their in-house team um, or have us implement it in some form um, or just walk alongside them as they implement whatever that happens to be. So um, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how the heck do you get a customer like Patagonia? <laughs> well, we had done a lot of work in the category. We'd solved some other meaty problems that they had seen. Um, actually, Smartwool was one of the big ones um, that we had spent seven or eight years working with Smartwool, um, reducing the waste in their packaging, um, reducing the time to, to create their package. Um, so taking waste out of the system and also um, simplifying the process of communicating with a person with the package itself inside of there because Sorrel has a lot of SKUs and making sure that it was uh, incredibly clear what you were buying and making that navigation easier. Uh, they had seen that work as well as a number of other projects we had done, which you don't know that people are seeing this stuff, right, out in the world. Then you get the call and you go, oh, you've actually – seeing what we've done in other places um and then we you know as we talked it through uh, we went up against some really significant firms to get this and uh and we basically one of the things we talked about a lot was patagonia has evolved into not your grandfather's environmentalist really a modern version of how do we think about our relationship with the planet um they have to be sustainable financially um as well or first right they cannot but they don't have to be over the top right they don't have to you know reaping incredibly rewards they can be extremely responsible and be a good brand like patagonia the company and patagonia the brand are the same thing right so what you feel like you know about them at least in the u.s culture now it's different in internationally they're sometimes seen as a fashion brand which is definitely not you know what they'd want to be associated with because they're an activist brand Right. They want you to wear their clothing and go do stuff and go advocate for the planet, advocate for things that are good for the planet. Right. Well, then maybe props to you or props to the the maybe the CEO who, who just retired. But I was just getting like a overnight bag or whatever they call it. And I was choosing between two. And the sole reason I actually didn't even like the design as much. The sole reason I went with the Patagonia uh bag is is solely because their brand and, and everything that i understand of their company so 
good on good yeah. on you guys. I, I guess. Uh, for- well, yeah, yeah. We did not have anything to do with that, and I think that was, <laughs> was an elegant move for sure. sure, sure. And uh, and I appreciate what he did, and the fact that he set a new marker, right? And this is what else you can do, right? Because founders retire, founders age, founders die, founders you know, have to move on and somebody else has to lead it. And the public markets can be a really icky place, right? If you live under the under the quarterly system um, and the expectations of profits and all the things that come with that, it's not for every brand. It's not for every company. So I'm doing very well on that. Um, it's important to consider there's other possibilities. And I think they, they broke new ground um, when he did that. So. Yeah, uh, not to go in too far into this direction, but um, to me, it was it just showed a completely different style of how to run a, a huge business. And uh, to me, it's actually almost like a better form of capitalism is, is kind of what he introduced to the world. So let's hope let's hope it goes uh, keeps going and, and others take his lead. But um, okay, so that was the big customers. Uh, now, even more important, I think is is how did you get your first customer? Our first customer came from our network. Um, came from the people we knew, um, and we had a we had a small one, um, but our really most probably significant first customer was Red Wing Shoes, um, and a number of projects for Red Wing Shoes that eventually led up to the refreshing of the Red Wing for Red Wing Shoes, um, which was taken I mean with incredible amount of respect and kick gloves to make sure we don't do anything to that brand that those um, their audiences don't respect and don't value. So that was one of our big um, first clients early on. And then also a local grocery store called uh, Buyer Lee's was a, a refresh and rebrand. Um, and then a little milk company that, that was called Schroeder Milk um, that we refreshed that was in packaging that won almost every award out there. Um, it was an amazing way to look at and navigate milk, um, which is, we've done a lot of, oddly enough, a lot of work in commodities, which I always find interesting because it's the opposite of brands. So you take something like a commodity and turn it into a brand, what what turns it into a brand? Well, packaging can definitely do that. You're aiding in the navigation, you're saving people time, you're delivering a high quality product, um, and you're no longer a commodity and you're becoming something of value that has margin. Well, I'm... I'm interested because you mentioned like helping with packaging costs and other actually like more cost saving things. Do you, do you, is it like a bad word to say the word consulting? Um, do you consider yourselves also on the consulting side more than marketing? Is there like, can you talk through that a little? Yeah. Yeah. It is, I've often referred to us as a consulting company that does things um in the fact that we <laughs> which is kind of a ding on consulting company but we have deliverables right deliverables that aren't reports we actually deliver assets we create intellectual property um not that that's always what we do we have clients like we have one right now that's um that's a local client that's called cooks cook is cooks at crocus hill um they mainly hire us for consulting and advising um around their brand around transitions around their customer experience um, so we have a number of clients that we consult and advise, but we, our deliverables look more like consulting companies than intellectual property. Um, but we like to deliver intellectual property because that is, for us, also more sustainable because we can have a case study, right. right? We did this and this is what happened and we made this contribution. You know, if you're advising somebody and they take your advice and do something, they actually did that action. You may have advised them to do that, but you don't get as much responsibility for that. You didn't create for them. So um, we prefer to create for people, but, you know, 
We also have those that just hire us to advise. Value add. I mean, it can't it can't hurt, right? If you're a marketing firm and Very you're consulting true. on things that end up working, then it's it's value. Um, it's true. It's true. Did you did you start this by yourself? Did you start with a team? And then the actual question behind that is is when did you feel ready to go from the small unit to a bigger unit, aka you know making that first hire? Yeah. Yeah, we started this, we had three partners originally, one partner left fairly early, um, like in the first year, and then it was just the two of us. And we we were pretty much on a, on a growth path. We had this set in our minds that we were going to be between, be between 12 and 15 people. Um, it's still family size enough. You can know everybody and, and, uh, and feel like you can all connect. Um, and you don't have fiefdoms and little packs that grow. Um, and you can do really big work, but also do startup work and not have a mass big overhead hanging over you, um, of expenses. So we found that to be the, the happy place. And we were pretty much on that track fairly early on. We had moments where we couldn't hire fast enough because it was before, because you we were founded in 99. So we went through nine eleven. I say I've been through at least three recessions, possibly four. So we were... We were there when it was hard to find employees and then 9-11 happened and then it was easy to find employees and not as easy to find clients. Um, it flipped almost overnight, right? Um, and so we were there when we just didn't couldn't find enough people. We were turning away work and um, it was not fun. And we've had those periods in our history as well. You, you run into that if you're going to limit yourself to the number of people, you're going to run into situations where you can't take on more um, because of the project capacity we have. So, so then, then what do you credit for lasting that long? Uh, tenacity, grit, resolve, all the entrepreneurial things. Just, uh, well, actually, if I look at it, it's, it's the type of people that we've chosen to work with that we, that we enjoy being around, right? Every day, not only the team members that we spend more time with, but also the clients, um, that we really enjoy working with them. They respect what we do. We respect what they're building. Um, and we add to it in some way that's just, that gets me up in the morning um, as the next thing to do. Um, the other thing I would say is the diversity of work. Um, we're not doing the same thing every time, which I think helps for the creative mind. You get new things to see, new things, new challenges. We have, I mean, the diversity has been so diverse. Sometimes we were working on tools for craftsmen and, and brand for and brand work for craftsmen, as well as a jewelry brand at the same time. They couldn't have been farther on the ends of the spectrum. Um, and, to, and then to a motorcycle brand for Polaris. Uh, so it, it, sometimes it's extremely diverse, which just makes it, I think, more interesting. And then we found that team members see that as well. So as far as our longevity, it's definitely got to be that. Keeps this is probably a stretch of a transition. Um, but I always thought that something else that's important for a company is diver- – I, I call it like diversity of thought. Uh, basically not hiring the same person over and over again, but hiring different people. Um, so, you know, one, do you have any thoughts on that? If not, you know, what do you look for when you hire? Yeah, definitely diversity of thought. We've had, we've had uh, two occasions. We've had lawyers or former lawyers on staff where, you know, and I've actually, I still would use them for some legal advice, even though they weren't my internal counsel. Um, but we, you know, it, it, and they've been, they were very successful team members for us, um, during that time period as a, but also an example of like, wow, a lawyer. And so, it, and it's hard though, because you get in a world and people go, well, we need to hire people in the industry. 
No, actually, we don't, because we can have people that are adjacent to the industry, have never been in, but they get in, they're like, I know how to do this, this, and this, because I do a, this thing over here that was just like that. Um, and they bring a totally different perspective to it, which is helpful for clients, helpful for making the, the end product better. Um, if all you hire are people on the inside, then all you're going to deliver are things that are on the inside. You never go outside of that. Because one of the best quotes I've heard in a while is, every industry disruption comes from outside the industry. It doesn't come from inside. Right, because if you're in an industry and it's and it's gotten to a certain level of maturity, you don't want to disrupt it. You know that means you're shaking the boat, right? You're messing with things that are going on in your industry. It has to come from somebody outside, right? Tesla, all kinds of other examples out there of of people from the outside coming in to disrupt the industry. So you got to have that inside. So there's the people you hire, right? It's not an easy thing to do though, because again, you got to look for people that exhibit things like an internal um, desire, right? They're internally motivated. Um, you got to look for those that want to continually learn and hunt for new things. Um, but being in the interview, putting themselves out there to see, I think I could do this um, is a first indication of that. And then it's going through a number of other steps and interview questions. And not that we get it right every single time at all. Sometimes we get it very wrong. <laughs> I still don't. I mean, I've had, I just hired someone well, it was two years ago that really seemed to want the role and then got into it and went, no, I don't like this. And it was, they were gone in 60 days. It was really devastating to me. I'm like, damn it. We blew that, right? I should have seen that. But there's only so much you can do. Yeah, just a, and just a real on. quick note on the, the you know, law or lawyers, I should say. Uh, I, I've heard before that law and coding teaches you how to think differently. Um, and it really does, it, it, you know, I mean, I think both similar where you're really thinking about every single circumstance that might come to play, not just what's at face value. Uh, and man, are lawyers and coders spectacular at that. Um, you were kind of saying, mm -hmm. you know, mistakes or, or things that didn't work out with hiring. Uh, what other mistakes have you made with hiring and maybe just in the business? So let's stick with hiring and then I'll ask the second question. With hiring... Um, our first big mistake, which we've gotten, we've done this one better, um, was a culture, not a fit in culture. Um, that is the most, one of the more painful mistakes you can make. Um, and it's one you can definitely get around. Um, there's methods for figuring that out. More people interviewing, more people that know the culture, more people that have been around interviewing that new person. Um, and we haven't really made that mistake in probably 10 or 15 years, um, again, which is really healthy. Um, the, so that as far as a, as a hiring mistake is probably the most painful, um, but also something you can fix. And then broadly speaking, as far as uh, some days I feel like I've made every mistake there is to be made in business. Um, you know, it's just things you like people would tell you like early on, it's say, you know, have a really good accountant and a really good lawyer, you know, if you're going to be in business, those are the two disciplines you need. And uh, when we first got into business, I'm like, I can do the accounting. I know I got an MBA. I know how to do accounting. I just set up a system and we're going to have it running. It'll be great. And we were like six months in and I'm like, why am I spending so much time in accounting and not in the business that I wanted to create and doing the stuff I wanted to do? I didn't go and start an accounting business. Um, and so it was, it was a painful mistake. And I, we got rid of the system we were using, outsourced it to an outside accountant and never looked back. Um, and it's been a phenomenal move. So that's one. And that's one I, piece of advice I always give people, make sure you have those two things in place. Um, 
because he did that. There's and I, I can. There's a long list of mistakes. This is going. This could go on for a couple of hours if you wanted me to go through all of them. Um, and, and it's also just the ability to admit like that was that's on me, or you know, between myself and my partner, that was on us. You know, we didn't we did that one wrong, right? Because you can't really blame anybody else. It's you come. You're the shit rolls uphill to you. Uh, I was not prepared to ask a question on that, but I think that's actually really important. So let me uh, let me talk for a second <laughs> uh, because I, I do. I think it's really important. I think there's two people in the world, right? Like the people that they kind of. It's funny to say put the blame on themselves, but that's kind of what you're doing, and then you then attack problems a little differently than saying, "Oh, why is this all happening to me?" Um, so I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, but I, I think it's especially for an entrepreneur, it re- literally is all on you. Um, you have to see it that way. So any, anything to add on that? I know that was a, not a great question. Yeah, you can't, you can't solve problems that you blame on other people. Right. You say that that's what they did. Then you're basically absolving yourself of the problem and, and whether or not, you know, you take on the guilt and all the other crap that comes with you making the mistake. That's not what's important. It's taking on the, okay, I can solve this next time. I'm not going to do this, this, or this to not have that problem happen again. Right. Um, but if you blame it on somebody else, you're never going to try to resolve that. You're never going to work on the problem. Um, because you pushed it off to somebody else. That's their problem, not yours. Um, and so that's why for me, it's critical that you take it on because then you're solving it. Um, and sometimes, which I would say this about like, sometimes you have difficult clients, right? You have clients that you're like, they're really hard. They're mean to us, or they, you know, they don't respect our work or they're, you know, they push us really hard on deadlines and other stuff. Um, and I said, there's no client we can't take on and we can't solve and unlock. Right. Because you need to keep looking at like, what are they looking for? Right. You think they're coming at you because of this, but it might just be because their day is not going great. What they really need is just someone to talk to about it. Right. Or someone to reflect on and know that we got them. We're there for you. We got you. We're going to make you look good in the end Um, and give them that confidence to go back in and fight the battle because they're fighting that for you and for themselves in whatever the project is. So, um, but if you just blame them, for being angry or for having a bad day, you can't solve that problem, right? You got to take it on. To well, solve I, I feel like your your that was a very therapy answer, um, and maybe that's the answer to this next question. Because my next question was going to be, how do you handle the pressure of you know blaming yourself? Let's call it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it used to be. I think over time, you figure out how to deal with pressure as it relates to all other things in your life, you know, and you go, you know, nobody's dying here, right? It's not brain surgery. Um, Sometimes it feels like it might be, but it really isn't. Um, And you just have to, you know, let, you know, see the fear, you know, understand it, understand the emotions that you're feeling, self-reflect, and then get past that to move on to what are the things. Because if you, and we've, We've talked about this before and in other conversations, right? If, if all you do is sit around and worry, right? What are you going to get done in life? There's nothing there, right? I don't, I just don't, it's not healthy. I see no reason to do it. Which sometimes it makes it look like I'm not thinking about something or not inherently worried about something. I am, but I'm not letting it consume me, right? We just had our first speaker series back in person in our new office, and and everything was coming along great. The technology looked like it was going to work out, but I was still worried about it. And then the day of, we hear like three days before, it's going to snow and rain. 
And I'm like, we're not going to have a live audience. No one's going to show up. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I look at him like, I can't do anything about the weather. There's nothing I can do about that. All I can do is trust in the people that signed up. They're going to show up. And we had 60 people show up out of the 80 that signed up. So I was extremely pleased with the outcome of that. Right. They were there and, and, uh, I didn't need to be worried about that. All right. Yeah. Egged me, egged me on enough to, to say the quote that we were talking about, uh, before. It was, uh, I know. It, it's, a, it's a, it's from stoicism. I, I believe it was Seneca. And he, and he said, uh, those who worry before necessary worry more than necessary. So yes, uh, of course I kind of got tricked because we were talking about that. Uh, <laughs> I love that quote. I love that quote. Um, oh, that was awesome. Um, so kind of coming towards the, the end of the episode, I just want to ask a few questions that I, I typically ask, um, for each episode. And, the first is if you had to teach something to other marketers, what would it be? The thing I, if they're just coming out into the world, I often refer to them as the T person. You got to develop yourself as a T person. I'd say capital T. You got a top bar and you got the downstroke and a T, right? You look at typography. Um, and the, and the top bar represents all the things you continually learn. Like you're very diverse in your learning. Um, the bottom, the downstroke um, is the thing you go deep on, right? If you're a coder, if you're uh, a person of words, a lawyer or someone um, into math in a big way, whatever that downstroke is, and that downstroke is connected to something that's foundational, right? Mathematics, writing, creativity, something that is foundational that will never really change, that top bar is all the stuff that comes and goes that you want to have enough knowledge on to be able to be able to participate. Right. Um, the discipline comes from that, making that downstroke strong. That is, that is by far the best thing you can get. And whatever you figure out your downstroke, you like propensity for math. Like you just love to be around math. Then don't be a creative copywriter. That's going to be painful for you every day. Right. Uh, and the same in reverse. Right. So making sure you understand what's at the core of who you are and building your downstroke around that, because that's what you're going to go back to every day. But then the other discipline becomes continually learning, right? What are you doing around AI? What are you exploring? You know, going deep on that, understanding what's going on around AI, testing it, probing it, being curious about it, being knowledgeable enough. Crypto, what's going on around crypto? Um, these are all really fascinating subjects as it relates to the advancement of society and the businesses that we're in. So building out that top stroke can be really, really powerful for people. So that's my, my biggest piece of advice as a human, getting out into the marketing community. Um, because where they did you learn that? I don't know where I got the T concept from. I should probably look that up and give credit because it's not mine at all. Um, credit should be given to whoever that is. And whoever that is, maybe they'll – They'll respond to this podcast and say, hey, that was me, and that'd be great, And because um, it's not mine at all. I think it's an elegant way to look at it. It seems to come up in coaching and, and, and helping people think through you know, their own personal identity and who they're growing up to be. Um, and so it's a nice visual, too. It helps you think about life. And I think companies prefer to hire more T people anyway. You know. If you think about it, what do you want as a person on that? Well, team? then, on that note, uh, do you have any books, podcasts, resources uh, that you listen to, read anything? It doesn't have to. It can be marketing, business, anything. Yeah, 
I really love 99% Invisible, the, his, the historical versions of that, which is 99PI, which is design of everything. So it's everything from why are there curb cuts, the design of curb cuts, uh, to the design of different types of buildings, to just design our lives. That's one of my, um, I think, Roman Mars, I believe, who, who is the, uh, the provider of that or the, the source of that as a podcast. Absolutely love it. Um, uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman, phenomenal book. I think if you are doing anything in the world, if you don't know a little bit about economics and specifically behavioral economics, you're missing out on a tremendous amount of life um, because it, it rules the world. And, you know, it really is a full understanding of how things move and change. Um, and behavioral economics is really, really interesting stuff. So Kahneman for sure. Um, yeah, and of course, Joe Pine, The Experience Economy, um, he changed my life with that book um, and, and what that's become and how that shows up. And literally, Apple stores, Apple employees, we hired a former Apple, Apple employee recently, and she's talking about backstage. Like, that comes out of Joe Pine's book. All of uh, the employees are stages, and the workplace is the stage. And backstage, of course, and how, why wouldn't Apple apply that? That's the language, right, that they use. I love that book. So to give you a few that I found fascinating over the years, and I'm probably not giving credit to the ones that I should that are out there. But the other thing I always do is ask authors their favorite books. That is an incredibly valuable thing to do because I've got, I got like Sapiens, another favorite book oh, from Daniel Kahneman, talking to him. He's like, Sapiens, you've got to read Sapiens. Oh, my gosh, that's an incredible book. That read. Right, right, right. It's one of the, it's like, you read that book, you're like, oh my God, this reshapes everything. I just like, you know, you're like, I can't even get my, uh, it's just, it's a phenomenal book. Phenomenal. Book. I'm not here to stop you if you want to keep going. Anyway. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm like, this is my favorite part of the, the entire conversation usually. So if you want to, if you, if you have any more, keep going. Well, yeah. Well, I just had, we just had Frank Rose. Um, he's author of uh, The Sea We Swim In. Uh, which is about immersive experiences, um, and I'm I'm deep in the middle of that book. He's also oh, wrote he also wrote um, the art of immersive experiences, the sea we swim in. Um, it's it, it 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 goes between immersive experiences and storytelling, and the fact that those two things. Um, he makes a comparison to like, do fish know water? Right? If you're in if you're a fish in the water, do you actually know what water is? Which in that case, you know, we are the fish, and in storytelling something do we even know when it's storytelling what it isn't right it's just part of who we are right it goes into behavioral economics it goes all the way obviously to movies and everything else that people talk about um anyway his stuff is just is also is at that profound level when you uh read his work so um for sure anything around him um yeah, I, I can't. I can <laughs> if you have any after this, please send it over uh, and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, last question. Are you guys looking to hire anyone right now? Yes, we are. We are. We're hiring what we call an experienced strategist in the traditional industry. That would be an account manager. They, they're on project management and strategy. Um, and we are currently looking for an experienced strategist for the team to replace somebody as our first retiree. So historically, we are that old as a firm that we've got someone retiring out of the business, which I, which is a, I think it's a moment for us. I'm really proud of it. And he's a, he's a great guy. And he's kind of ride off into the sunset slowly on a horse. Not really because he doesn't ride horse, but he's definitely 
that kind of I think it's credit to you guys to have someone that's been on there long enough and and obviously can feel comfortable to retire at whatever age and all that kind of stuff so uh not just not just a, a good benchmark but I think I think definitely props to you guys um and then last thing I just want to really just give you an opportunity to mention how people can find you and anything else you'd like to end with yeah, you can find us at capsule.us or myself at Aaron Keller at capsule.us. And we are all over in social media and almost every platform. We're not hard to find. And uh, yeah, or our books on Amazon. Obviously, the physics brand is out there selling quite well. Do you want to say Amazon. three book names? So, yeah, I think you mentioned one book name. You can. Yeah. The other book names? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Physics of Brand and then Design Matters Logos and Design Matters Packaging, which we wrote over 15 years ago, also had profound impact on our business and, and all the things we've done. Uh, but they're also written in a different way and uh, with a lot of personality. So I always highly recommend those. It's amazing how many design students come through design school and, and say, oh, that's right. I read your book, <laughs> which is kind of weird and also a nice little marker in life. So, yeah, those are much older. I don't know if they're both available on Amazon. If they are, they're probably used at this point in time. But Awesome. Also well, I, I honestly love this time. I thought this was, was a great time. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show, and I hope everyone has a fantastic and successful day. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Marketing Agency podcast. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. And before we go, I just want to thank our sponsors, DevNoodle. DevNoodle provides marketing agencies with the ability to offer their clients unlimited website design, build, and management services with fixed monthly plans. If website design, development, and maintenance is holding your agency back from growing, please reach out to us at devnoodle.com, where we make websites easy, easy for you and easy for your clients, devnoodle.com.